pelvis. Dear young rocker, you'll carry around a small, tiny school picture of yourself, your third grade class picture. You scribble your name on the back, home phone number and address. You don't have an email yet. You're eight and nine and 10 years old. You'll carry it around searching for them, a best friend, a soulmate. Because when you're young, the world is open with endless possibilities of what's in store for the future. You could get your next big break by singing songs in the supermarket or running into your forever best friend at a summer camp or just sitting around waiting for the bus. So you want to be prepared. Like a business card, you carry it around in an empty wallet. You brought it with you from third grade up until middle school where you felt like you weren't a kid anymore. You were almost a teenager. And that small eight-year-old girl with so much hope would eventually give up, grow up, and pack the now irrelevant picture away. You weren't eight years old anymore. But sometimes, when you give up, and you're least expecting it, you get exactly what you've always wanted and have been searching for. To feel understood. To find someone who will truly shake your world and you never saw coming. To find your soulmate in whatever form that is. Young Rocker. In the summer of 2003, I was informed I would have to transfer schools again. This would be my seventh school by eighth grade. I had to walk a mile every morning to the bus stop. That would take me to a completely different school. But this was where I would meet her. Anna. Sometimes you meet someone unexpectedly, someone who changes everything, your entire future, who you are, someone who shifts your entire life's path forever. Walking through the halls of my new middle school, I knew no one. It wasn't my first time changing schools and environments, but it was the first time I was nervous. The halls were older and dimly lit. Everything was outdated and broken. The computers were old and didn't work. The ceilings leaked. There was a tension in the air. And as I walked around trying to find my locker in between my classes, someone would shout at me. Hey, hey Anna. Anna. Oh, hey, Anna. Hey, Anna, you have a good summer? At first, I didn't think they were talking to me, so I kept walking. But after two full days, I realized everyone thought I was someone else even some of the teachers. People started to talk about it, gathering in small circles behind me after each of my classes to examine and count freckles from afar. 
like a small school of fish in circles, biting the backs of my ankles, debating who I was. I don't think that's her. No, that is her. I think she's just ignoring us. The whispers built into a buzz that sounded like a swarm of bees now 10 feet behind my left shoulder. I rolled my eyes, slammed my locker shut, and turned around to look right at them. The whispers suddenly stopped, and the halls went silent. Until one of the boys under his breath said, I still think that's her. The girl next to him slapped his shoulder, signaling him to shut up. Hey, my name is Sam. One of the girls stepped forward with her hand out. I told you it wasn't Anna. She said under her breath to one of the three boys standing next to her. Sorry, we thought you were our friend Anna. We haven't seen her all summer. Are you new? Would you like us to walk you to your next class? Uh, sure. They followed me closely, swarming around me, still staring as if they'd seen a ghost, not fully convinced my existence wasn't some sort of deception. Sam wore Converse and flared jeans and a black band t-shirt. Her boyfriend Aaron had black rimmed glasses and greasy black hair that fell into his eyes. Let me guess, you like Nirvana and Blink-182. And you like Zeppelin and Weezer. They confirmed with eager and excited glances, confused as to how I would have known that. I'd been changing schools sometimes three times in a year. Every school was different, but some things never changed. Well, uh, thanks for walking me. I turned around and walked to my seat, wondering if I'd ever meet this look-alike, and if we were really anything alike. It wasn't until later in the week when I had gym that I would finally meet her. I sat alone high up in the bleachers in my baggy gym clothes while the rest of the girls played volleyball. And there, sitting at the other end of the empty bleachers below me, was Anna. I moved closer to her, hoping she would speak to me first, not knowing how to ask if she was the girl everyone thought I was. She was eating a packet of saltines while drinking a Diet Coke and also refusing to participate in gym. Want one? She held out the packet of saltines without even glancing over at me, quietly with her finger picking out pieces of crackers that had settled into her braces. My name's Anna, she said, her gaze still fixed dead in front of her watching the other girls participate in gym class. I could see the resemblance now. The aloofness, the jadedness, a sad short haircut. We had both obviously seen the French film Amelie. I could tell right away we probably liked the same music and read the same sad books. I'm sure she also spent most of seventh grade crying in the bathroom too. It was an instant connection. You must be Nadia. I hadn't made any friends yet, early spoken to anyone, so I was a little surprised and nervous she'd already been informed of my existence. When the gym teachers made everyone else gather around outside to run laps around the soccer field, Anna and I slowly walked around in the dry grass and talked about all the music we liked and what books we were reading. 
In seventh grade, I'd fallen in love with the yeah, yeah, yeahs, something corporate, blondie, and bright eyes, Elliot Smith, and Dashboard Confessional. I had spent the summer saving up for a record player, taking film photos and reading books and journals by people who'd killed themselves or had been committed. I had developed a deep, dark fascination with death and existentialism. I didn't come right out and say this, but I think it was obvious based on my summer reading list. I was obsessed and wasn't exactly sure why. If you like Fevers and Mirrors, you'll definitely love Azure. I'll make you a mix CD. She said it as if it was no big deal, but to me, it was everything. No one in real life had ever made me a mix CD before. Not a physical CD. With Sharpie handwriting and little doodles hand-drawn on the CD. She filled it with some music I'd already had, but mostly new music I had never heard of. All new sounds to explore and learn and love. Rilo Kylie, Mira, The Rocket Summer. It all matched my mood perfectly. And for the first time, I felt understood. I'd had friends at my last school, but most of them just listened to punk music. I could see it, the resemblance now between us. Two somber, sad girls with short black hair, walking slowly through the grass, refusing to participate, laughing at how it truly wouldn't matter in a few weeks or months or years if we ran in gym class that day. We thought it was silly how serious some of the girls were taking it, holding each other's feet down, counting each other's setups as we slowly walked by them. Anna and I were the same, but I felt more like a new shelter puppy compared to her. Slightly more wide-eyed, less jaded, still a young puppy with a little bounce in my step, still trusting, still hopeful. Anna seemed like a parallel universe version of me, but it was a universe that had caught up to me, spit me back out where I belonged right next to Anna. Living on the highway that divided the district lines, the rich went to one school, and the poor went to another. And even though you could throw a rock across the street that split the county into two, it didn't matter how close you were to the other side, how many books you read, or how much you educated yourself. You weren't, and would never be, allowed to cross it. Teaching us children early in life where our places were, and that just because you could see it, doesn't mean you can have it. Anna and I went to the school where teachers didn't teach, Exhausted from the endless detention slips they had to write and endless fights that had to be broken up in between each and every class in the hallway. You had to walk through metal detectors to get through the front doors. Most of the classes were in trailers. It had the highest pregnancy rate in the county. And the moans that let out from the bathroom in the middle of our math classes would ring out in the halls, making the hall monitors blush an uncomfortable red 
as they stared down at their shoelaces or fidgeted picking at the pinned brass buttons on their shirts. Sometimes it feels like you can't escape the life you were born into, and certain audible tones were always a constant reminder of that. My mother and I were living in a house that had been foreclosed on three times. She was now supporting us completely on her own. We couldn't afford the house, but somehow managed to maintain it by the skin of our teeth, with an empty fridge and utilities that were often cut off and magically turned back on in the middle of the night. This was the year my mother started flip-flopping moods, and you never knew which person you were going to get when she walked into the room. This was the year she took to talking through her teeth on a more consistent basis, and it became almost a dialect of its own that she had developed as a result from the divorce. This is how much I make, and this is how much the mortgage is, and this is how much daycare costs. She'd slide the bills across our kitchen counter to show proof whenever I asked for something that was deemed past necessity. Anna's universe was filled with cramped bedrooms and sisters sharing one bathroom, the smell of hair straighteners that were always left on grazing the hallways, and hairspray thick like paint lined the walls. Her mother had drank on weekdays and filled closed cars with cigarette smoke, blown out of slits of driver's side windows that allowed rain to drip in during the rainy winter season. They lived in an apartment complex where a surplus of children from each unit poured out into the streets like a parade when it was time to load in for the school bus. I couldn't tell if I belonged here more or less. I was always in between. But what our environments did have in common was that our mothers were almost never around and we were left with little to no supervision to do whatever we wanted. And all we wanted to do was dance around our rooms to the yeah, yeah, yeahs or cry to perfect sonnet or Constantine on loop, blaring so loud you couldn't even think of what was in front of you, lying and staring at the ceiling for hours, thinking about your own little existence and what it felt like to be alive. The kids at my new school were more reckless and ruthless, but no one judged you for what you looked like or dressed like. There were no cliques like at my last school. Everyone was equal. We were all poor, so it didn't matter what you were into. I was the more sardonic one, laughing through our existence. Anna was the one trying to challenge everything and find an escape, but there was no escape. No matter how perfect our grades were or the books we read, there wasn't anything that could save us from this place. Being lower class and overeducated was our downfall. Falling in love with books and seeking to learn and understand the world around you, you could see what was coming. You just couldn't stop it. And the frustration and tension of those circumstances led us to seek control in any form from anywhere we were able to get it. We both wanted to apply to private colleges that would cost us a lifetime of debt just to be able to prove we could be there. We deserved to be there and get the education we always wanted. But it would cost us far more than the peers that we foolishly viewed as equals and surrounded ourselves with. Even back then, we knew our fate. 
Sure, my last school was filled with rebellious kids, but it was mostly punks with rich parents, and their rebellion was simply from an environment, a social class they could never escape and would never actually want to. Both of their parents loved them. They had endless amounts of money with recording studios in their basements and custom half pipes built for them in pool houses and country club neighborhoods. It was safe and nothing ever really changed or was challenged besides the expectation of what you listened to and what you wore to school. Anna thought about everything. Why systems were the way they were, why our parents were the way they were, why we were the way we were. She didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance because she thought it was psychotic. She liked that I was vegan when we met. Anna started me on a path of thinking about everything. Everything I did, everything I created, everything I consumed in the world around me. I already spent my summer nights reading as many books as I could, listening to as many records as I could, and downloading so much music that a computer virus crashed our home computer and would no longer turn on. Anna was the first person to have influence over me, to inspire me, to understand me, to teach me and to listen to me, to affect my mannerisms and teach me to always want more and challenge what was around me. This was the first time I met someone who was just like me. And it felt like fate. We both drank Diet Coke for lunch with saltines and we both had read The Bell Jar and Catcher in the Rye. Anna and I both loved Saddle Creek and K Records and Elephant Six. For us, music wasn't just something to listen to. It was saving you. Music was everything. And any song you loved, you hung on to every word as if it was written for you, as if you were the only two people in the world who knew what that artist felt like when they wrote it. It was an intimate and private bond you had with strangers. Anna was the one who told me when Elliot Smith died. She found me standing at my locker in the early afternoon between English and history class. Nadia? Elliot Smith killed himself. We both burst into tears, holding each other while all the other kids pushed past, with no acknowledgement or consideration to our loss. Girls, get to class. The science teacher yelled across the hall, completely unfazed by our tears or tragedy that had shaken our little worlds to its core. Elliot Smith's death was our Lennon assassination. I sometimes look back and think about how I wouldn't have known what to do with a kid like me. A 12-year-old vegan refusing to eat dinner, reading Sylvia Plath poems and crying quietly into her sweater vest while listening to old cassette tapes. Alone, singing in her bedroom and playing sad chords on her guitar all day. I spent all my free time exploring antique shops and finding vintage clothes at thrift stores. The couple who ran the antique shop near my house practically raised me. They were like the parents I never had. They sold me my first Go-Go and Bob Dylan and Beach Boys record. When the shop owners finally met my mother, they told me that she wasn't who they were expecting. Oh, this is your mother. This isn't exactly who we were expecting. 
Wow. You could see it in their face. They were confused as to where I'd come from, where I was getting my taste in music and books. The short locks of dark brown curls didn't seem to bear any resemblance to the long blonde strings of highlights that my mother maintained. There weren't even a constellation of similar freckles to bind us past anything other than acquaintances. So it was a common reaction to my mother. Everyone was always shocked by her youth, her beauty, her yellow hair, and the playboy bunny looks that she possessed. She acted dumb, but she wasn't. She was mean and ruthless and beautiful, but we had nothing in common. My mother would tell me we were going out for dinner and I would put on an outfit that made me feel so cool. A new floral dress I thrifted or maybe a hat or scarf. I would confidently start to walk down the steps. She would suddenly appear in the foyer below me. Oh, you're not actually gonna wear that, are you? You're totally fucking with me, right? You're like trying to embarrass me and torturing me. No one at school ever made fun of how I dressed. Only my mother did. She didn't understand why I didn't want to buy new clothes at the mall like the other kids my age. She told me I dressed like her grandmother. That was her favorite thing to say to me. I don't understand you. You dress like my grandmother. But she did have her supportive moments. There were times I would play with gender and demand to be called a different name. I started wearing blazers to school with Dickies and a wife beater and told people to call me Aiden or Adam after cutting the remaining locks of my previous bobbed hair. My mother sat me down and held both of my hands. She looked into my eyes with a very serious expression, almost tearing up. Thinking there had been a sudden death in the family, I braced myself for whatever bad news I was about to be briefed on. I just wanted to let you know that it's totally okay. You can tell me. Tell you what? That you're gay. What? Mom, no, I'm not gay. No, it's okay. I love you. I'm here for you. Most of my friends are gay. It's okay. You can tell me. I'm not gay. But I've never seen you act interested in boys. And you cut off all your hair and... Thank you. I'm not gay. Okay, well, I just wanted to let you know it's okay with me. She'd obviously missed my seventh grade notebook, plastered with photos of Jarvis Cocker, Andrew McMahon, and Connor O'Burst. And even though I wasn't completely straight either, I appreciated the awkward support she tried offering me sporadically throughout these years. Anna was the first person I went to a concert with without my parents. We saw Death Cab for Cutie, Mira, Tilly and the Wall, Something Corporate, Azure, and The Rocket Summer. We spent most of the year going to concerts together and meeting people from all over. The first concert we ever went to together was Dashboard Confessional with Brand New. 
I remember how friendly everyone was towards us while we waited outside in line. Everyone towered over our small frames. People gathered around to ask us how old we were, standing there gangly, pale, 90-pound, 13-year-old girls. We stood out. Anna and I saw every concert the same way. Dead center, the first two people touching the barricade, right in front of the microphone. Our small bodies would push through the sea of people, willingly parting to allow two small girls to pass through unscathed. And once the music started playing, the crowd would push tightly together, binding us all together, lifting up our small bodies off the ground, unwillingly submitting control to the waves of the people, swaying in the ocean's current as our feet now hovered over the floor and carried us off into the distance, swaying slowly with the music, left, then quickly moving right, our shoulders at one point almost touching the ground. Protect the girls! Tall, older men would scream and form circles around us, with interlocking arms trying to save us from getting swept up into the riptide of fans. Strangers you'll never know, making sure you're safe from any harmful, rough waters. Looking back, I feel lucky we survived those storms together. The music allowed us to survive. Anna's mother was always the one to drop us off and pick us up afterwards. My mother refused to drive all the way into the city to take me anywhere. If my mother dropped me off anywhere close, as I was exiting the car, she would yell out the passenger window. Find your own ride home, okay? She asked, but it was never a question. I'd often hop rides with strangers, men with white vans that hung out in parking lots after show hours. I was lucky. Nothing truly bad ever happened. And even the things that were kind of bad weren't so bad. They felt more like an adventure. I was lucky people were always watching out for me. I was everyone's little sister. And because of this, people were often very protective. Most of my friends I met at shows during this time were in their last year of high school or first few years of college. Sometimes they would pick me up from school early and let me tag along with them. I remember Katie leaving high school early one day her senior year and taking me to IHOP. She didn't judge me when I ordered hot chocolate and the kids' funny face pancake. I piled on as many chocolate chips as possible before we went to a show later that night. We sat at the diner while my stack of pancakes in the shape of a clown with two cherries for eyes stared back at us and I subtly licked the whipped cream off the top of my hot chocolate. Sometimes, I just wanted to be a kid. She took me to a show later that night that a few of our mutual friends were playing at. These guys were all like my older brothers. Some of them offered me safe rides home, others made me mix CDs. A few I met hanging around the venue, they were all in their 20s, and when you're 13, Anyone above the age of 14 and in a band seems cool to you. We had bonded over our love of Kraftwerk, the Buzzcocks, the Tigra, and the Epoxies. Kate said John was about to go on tour with the Aquabats, and I was really excited about that. He was the one in the group I had the biggest crush on, even though it felt like having a crush on your best friend's older brother. We watched as their bands played and the singer and John lit their crotches on fire. 
Apparently, it was the thing they did at every show, lit their crotches on fire with lighter fluid. I didn't really care for the band. They were just my friends, and they were really fun to hang out with. I noticed as the venue owner put on the new Bell and Sebastian album, Dear Catastrophe Waitress, while he scurried around getting everything ready for the next band. I ran up to him as he was pacing around, setting up microphones and untangling cables. Hey, I love this album. Did you put this on? Oh yeah? Yeah, it's really different from their other stuff, but it's so good. Oh yeah? What's your favorite album of theirs? Fold your hands, child. You walk like a peasant. Ah, that's a good one. I personally like if you're feeling sinister. I didn't tell him at this moment, but I hadn't listened to that album yet. I was saving it specifically for my first week of freshman year of high school, so that decades later, I would listen to it and remember what it felt like to be newly 14 and in high school. Saving albums for specific moments so that I could capture and freeze a feeling in time through a song was something I started to do after I turned 13. Once I realized listening to songs from kindergarten or even sixth grade made me somehow feel how I used to feel back then, it made me nostalgic for the past and aware that one day in the future, I would be nostalgic for this past. Sometimes I wasn't sure how I felt in a moment until months had passed and I would put on whatever record I was listening to from that time. The feeling would come rushing back and I would process my life in this moment. We chatted for a bit and then I asked him how I would go about booking a show. I had spent the winter in my friend Joe's basement playing his drum set, learning all the strokes and yeah, yeah, yeah songs. I played drums and sang and he played the guitar parts. Since I was five years old, I always wanted to be a drummer, but my mother would never allow me to get a drum set. She didn't even let me sing very loudly when I was in my room. The house had to be quiet at all times. Everything I recorded and wrote felt like a secret I was whispering out loud. I can still hear you. My mother would scream out behind closed doors from downstairs and across the house. She had the ears and nose of a bloodhound. Joe had instruments and gear scattered throughout the basement. He was a few years older than me and his parents had gotten him a Les Paul and a few nice amps and pedals for Christmas. We met outside of a show that took place in a suburban church and have been friends ever since. Hey, check this out. His parents had just bought him a new Mac desktop computer. He told me he was gonna start recording bands and slowly getting gear together. He just hadn't gotten any microphones yet. Do you want to record one of your songs? How? There's an internal mic. Can you play to a click? A what? No. At this point, I had only recorded my songs in my bathroom, on my little tape deck, and definitely had never played songs in front of anybody before. You just pull up GarageBand, and you start recording. He hit record and handed me an acoustic guitar. Okay, but don't judge me. I'm, I'm really nervous. It's, it's not that good. I've never played for anyone before. I closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and started to play. 
I tried not to shake and focus on playing all the right notes, but not focus too much. I tried to just let go and just submit to the moment, to the music, to the sound. I sang quietly towards the computer. No headphones, no click track, just singing into the air with hopes it would capture the fever dream that I had always envisioned. He burned the songs onto a disc and handed it to me. And just like that, I had a song that I made on a CD that could actually be played. I finally did it. I recorded my first song. The venue owner told me had heard some of my music circulating from online and asked if I wanted to go look at some dates in his office. I told Katie I would be right back and I followed him into a room I'd never been in before. He sat down in his office chair and I sat in a chair next to him. He pulled out a black calendar book filled with dates and schedules of touring bands and he asked me if I wanted to open for a potentially sold out show in the fall. Without looking at me, still fixated on his calendar, he put his hand on my exposed thigh as he continued to flip through his black book. I told him that sounded great and thank you so much. That should work. Thank you so much. I knew in that moment that if I acted scared or even acknowledged it, it could be trouble. He could like it or call me a prude. Either way, any type of response would show him I wasn't in control. I pretended like it wasn't happening and acted as professionally as I could. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be the last time a venue owner or boss or coworker or someone in a position of power put a hand on my thigh while offering something to me. An opportunity, a future, a way out. Even at 13, I knew if I rejected his hand, the offer of playing a show would be rescinded or worse. And I just wanted to make music. I'd never had a boy or man ever touch me before. My sexuality was still in a blooming state that was contained to my four bedroom walls. My sexuality was dancing around to date with the night or singing Blondie into my hairbrush spinning around and shrugging my shoulders to common people by pulp. Sexuality always felt like a performance, felt like a song, a bit on stage, a way you sang and felt over something you did. And what I was attracted to the most was music. My body was always something others viewed as an option for them, as something sexual to them. Whereas my only view of my body was a vessel to create and make and do other things with. But with my first major show booked, I thanked the owner and left as quickly as I possibly could. I was on cloud nine. A show. My first show. Kate gave me a ride home and I felt like nothing was going to stop me now. But when I got home, I found my mother crying. She told me to pack up all my things and that we were leaving. She gave no explanation other than that we were moving in with her new boyfriend, 
who lived a few hours away. I was devastated. How was I ever going to get to play at that venue show now? I had to start over, again. I took down and packed up the Polaroids taped to my walls, stacks of books that laid next to my nightstand, and box of mixtapes and CDs, and my guitar. She wanted to move before school started next Monday. With only a few days notice, I packed up to attend my eighth school and start ninth grade in a brand new city, in a brand new school, where I knew no one. Anna had just friend broke up with me for the second time. And by the end of the school year, she wasn't speaking to me again. She had done this a lot to many people. And now she ate lunch alone. She spoke to no one. She no longer had any friends. I sought solace in Sam and Aaron. I went to my first school dance with them before the school year ended, where we all danced together all night and I snapped Polaroids of everyone. We were all of Anna's rejects, like misfit toys sent to Castaway Cove. We had all been dumped by Anna for different reasons that were always unreasonable in youth. She found Aaron too sheltered and nice. She found Kirk too blunt and honest. She felt Sam wasn't honest enough. And I had told her happy birthday one day late while school wasn't in session. But for the first time ever, I was happy. This new group of friends didn't get me like Anna did, but it was fun and different and lively. We laughed and had fun, and it felt like, for the first time, like youth, like living. I went to the final school dance in a handmade A-line polka dot dress my grandmother made for me that I had designed. I walked up and kissed the shy, quiet boy in a Zeppelin t-shirt on the cheek and walked away. I guess it was the perfect way to leave, without any explanation and without saying any goodbyes, leaving this moment lingering, hanging there forever in time, just without me. I paused and stopped dancing. I took a few steps back from the crowd of kids gathered in the gym and watched as everyone laughed and danced and lived in a moment that felt like would last forever. Standing watching from the corner of the gymnasium, holding my Polaroid camera in one hand, watching everyone else dance in the school gym, I snapped another picture. For the first time, it felt perfectly like youth, and I took it all in. Anna would have hated it. She never would have been caught dead at a school dance. She would have made fun of all the paper plates and plastic streamers. She would have put down someone's outfit, made fun of some poor teacher's lipstick, and sat on the bleachers alone, hating every moment of this. She never would have tried to dance with the other kids or ignored the little things that, in the long term, didn't matter. Like how we were all just in the school gym, in dimmed lights, dancing to songs we all hated. But I knew 
As cheesy and as lame as this was, these were the moments I didn't want to miss or forget. Sometimes doing things you think you'll hate turns into moments you'll cherish and love forever. You never know what you'll like until you try it. You never know what you'll be missing if you weren't ever there. And you only regret the things you don't do. And this is what makes life worth living. And as infinite as time might feel in youth, you swear these moments will always be there. They won't. So hold on to them as much as you can, for as long as you can. Try and remember that you'll eventually meet all the people you were meant to meet. Just be patient. And try and also remember that you can leave a moment or place, but you can't always come back to it. So snap a picture and write it down because just like youth, memory doesn't last forever. So try to not spend your whole life sitting there alone on the bleachers. You never know what you might miss sitting there from the sidelines. listening to Dear Young Rocker, season four. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Elvis. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Titoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.